pleasure to be here in Oxford. I haven't been to Oxford for a number of years to give a seminar, not since Michael Gilson was running the seminars. Uh, so it's very nice to be back and to also see some uh, old friends. Uh, the title of the talk today is The League of Nations Minority Regime as Anthropological Object, Rethinking Minority, Nationality, the international and international governance through history. Okay. Now, the, the reason for this talk, I think, is to explore uh, something which has perplexed other people as much as myself. And that is, I suppose, basically, what's a nice anthropologist like me who started out uh, in a uh, rather conventional and understandable uh, research in a small town in northern Greece looking at gender and performance uh, and embodiment. What's she doing in the League of Nations? Um, how do we understand that jump from uh, a small town, a small locality to uh, uh, the international, to an international institution um, from the local to the international or global, we might say, and also from the present, a study that's based in the present, uh, to one that is based uh, on study of the past, and which uses a very different set of materials, uh, specifically archival materials, uh, a past which isn't ex accessible except through uh, written documents of various kinds, of which archives are, are central. And I think I've had to ask this question to myself uh, a, a lot because um, not only am I moving to this kind of site, which is quite unusual for anthropologists to go to, but also because this site is actually in the territory of a number of different disciplines, of history, uh, of uh, law, uh, diplomatic history, international diplomacy, um, international relations. So really I have had to actually construct the League of Nations uh, as a League of Nations, a, a specific part of it, because it's a very huge institution, uh, the specific part of it uh, that I've entered, the minority supervision regime as an anthropological object. I went in there, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a minute, uh, found it quite fascinating, because found it as something which could potentially uh, be read through anthropological kinds of issues and questions. And I'm going to kind of take you through at least one kind of narrative uh, about that, that move. Um, and I'm going to do it, I'm going to start by uh, giving you part of, of, of a piece that I wrote, which, which asked me, as an anthropologist who was working on the boundaries, really, of anthropology, on, on the kind of frontiers, and on the boundaries with other disciplines. And I was asked very specifically uh, for a, a little debate, which will be published uh, in very, very soon in the journal Focal. I was asked, what's anthropological about your work? And I thought, hmm, I wonder what is anthropological about my work? There must be something. There must be certain things which are. So this is, this is how I uh, began to think about this. First of all, it's important to realize that this, is, this League of Nations project of mine is, I think, really my second big project, although I've done other things between my fieldwork uh, in Greece on dance in between. But this is the one that has been quite a big pro project and have been working on for many years. Now, recently, if you don't mind me citing a, a rather impresario American anthropologist, uh, George Marcus, George Marcus was writing about second, uh, second projects among mid-career anthropologists. And he said um, that he saw two distinctive elements of those projects. First, they arose, he thought, out of undisguised passion, identification, or some clear personal connection rather than a given repertoire of study within a disciplinary research program. It's something that, that uh, you, you feel drawn by the questions that you want to answer. You're drawn to new, new domains. Second, these projects, while familiar, familiarly 
beginning with ethnographic foci conceived within the site-specific mise-en-scene of traditional anthropological research, they demand elaboration and expansion by ethnographic means into other realms and to other literal places. We could say that my League of Nations research began with an ethnographic conundrum. I carried out fieldwork in the mid-1980s in a northern Greek town, Sohos, whose inhabitants fiercely proclaimed their Greekness, yet remained attached to a range of everyday practices identified by themselves and by others as not Greek. They included such practices as joking, nicknaming, storytelling, place naming, some forms of song and dance, which used uh, or were expressed in or conceptually associated with Bulgarian, which they called Bulgarian but not the real Bulgarian, or in Turkish. So Hoyas nonetheless insisted that they were Greek, they were not a minority. Now you need to know that in the context of a highly nationalistic public domain, Sohoyan's national uh, native language, their Slavic native language, had long been a source of stigma and suspicion. They are, of course, a specific case within the larger category of so-called Slavic speakers who live in the Macedonian region of Greece. Since the Macedonian struggle of the early 20th century, the comp complicated position of these ambiguous persons within narratives of national identity has given rise to trauma and silences, to accommodations and new identifications. In the 1940s and again in the late 1980s and 90s, um, and, and subsequently, that complicated position and its effects for persons and communities concerned has played a role in struggles for recognition and minority rights. And I think this was brought home to me particularly um, the, the kind of range of responses to um, uh, this positioning um, was brought home to me when we saw uh, the emergence of a Macedonian human rights uh, group movement uh, in a, a small town in the western part of Macedonia, the place I had been working was in the central part, um, and this, uh, this movement came out very strongly drawing on uh, United Nations uh, uh, human rights uh, conventions and minority rights uh, legislation within the, the, the European context and calling for a recognition of Macedonians as a minority and support for the Macedonian language. Now unfortunately, in a way, uh, their movement emerged just a few years uh, before the breakup of Yugoslavia, and they, in a sense, became um, their movement became conflated, I think, in the, the mind of uh, the Greek uh, government and many people in Greece who became extremely hostile. In fact, they were not ever going to be very sympathetic to it, but they became even more hostile to it because they they began to think, well. Is this group wanting a separate territory? Uh, are, are we going to see in Greece uh, something similar to what has been happening or what we're seeing happening now uh, in Yugoslavia? Um, and I think that was not necessarily the case, but it was kind of a problem of timing. But in any case, what was going on in that particular region um, was not something that the people in the community where I had worked were sympathetic to. They were very skeptical of this movement. They wanted to know who's behind it, uh, and, and they didn't uh, agree with the notion that they ought to be included in this um, uh, category of the Macedonian minority. Now, as I've said, this, this contrast, I think, was very fertile and very important for me in thinking that I wanted to begin to understand these very different subjectivities, these very different responses to the kind of possibilities uh, that of, of, uh, of, a, of a positive minority identification 
that were becoming uh, possible within the, the broader European framework and that some uh, communities like those in Florida were taking up and other ones like the community where I work uh, were very afraid of and hostile to. Um, so I wanted to, to I, I knew that these differences were in part related to different historical experiences, different historical engagements of communities across this region with the Greek state, uh, with the Ottoman Empire, uh, with Serbia, with Bulgaria, uh, different also histories of migration, labor migration, uh, different uh, experiences with the kinds of forced and voluntary population movements that had occurred in the first uh, three or four uh, decades of, of the century. So there was a lot of specificity uh, behind the kinds of responses that these communities were, um, uh, with the kind of responses that they were coming up with. And I wanted to, to get to know Sohos better historically than I had. And I very quickly bumped up against the impasses of nationalist histories and the silences that they produce around inconvenient facts. The Sahoyans had always stressed to me that they had always been Greek, their Slavic language notwithstanding. This was not in itself implausible uh, because Greekness, that Greekness that they claimed, would have been grounded in their uh, uh, religious attachment to the patriarchal, the patriarchate, the Greek patriarchate um, from the 19th century. Um, onward, which, which was Greek-dominated at the time, and would have been distinguished from those who had been uh, members of the Bulgarian uh, Orthodox Church. So in some sense, their, their, their uh, answer made sense. But I thought it was too neat. Surely a large town like Sohos, with a, uh, a majority Bulgarian-speaking population, would have been hotly contested by Bulgarian Greek uh, and possibly other nationalist bands in the turn of the century Macedonian struggle. And when they were pressed, uh, the local people would usually admit that, okay, a few families had, as they said, turned to Bulgarian, but these, they said, had departed. The names and dates of departures were left vague. When I consulted historical accounts of the town and region that were written by uh, Greek historians, but actually by pretty much anybody, both professional and amateur, I couldn't find any mention of these Bulgarians in Sohos, nor of any departures. A conversation in spring 1996 with a young Greek uh, historian friend of mine uh, proved a turning point. He smiled, recognizing my problem. And then he suggested that I might look in the League of Nations archives in Geneva to, to find uh, traces of such people. Some might have opted, he, he said, to emigrate to Bulgaria uh, and to take on Bulgarian citizenship in the early 1920s under the auspices of the Greco-Bulgarian voluntary and reciprocal emigration. A month later, I visited the League of Nations archives this was a very interesting kind of coincidence and serendipity that sometimes happens to us in life, that at the time my husband was actually working in Geneva and I was living in Geneva quite a lot of the time, as I still do. Uh, so, so for the, the suggestion that I go to the, the archives in Geneva really wasn't so difficult to follow up. But I entered hoping to track a Sohoian story and eventually I did indeed find a record noting 16 household applications for emigration from Sohos in these files. But within the first few days, I could see that the archives held a bigger story. Dossiers filed under the rubric Bulgarian minorities bulged with many sorts of documents. Debates about the racial nationality, as it was called, of the, quote, unquote, Bulgarian minorities, and about what their language really was, unsolicited reports by British military and civilian charity workers on the conditions in refugee camps across the Bulgarian border, petitions and the memoranda that they generated, 
and discussions on bureaucratic procedure in relation to petitions, and lots more. These bundles of fragile papers testify to an intense and long-standing preoccupation on the part of a Western European elite in the subject nationalities of both the Ottoman and Habsburg empires. Liberal Europeans had long encouraged these people uh, to, to think of themselves as nations, to revolt against their imperial masters, and to aspire to their own national states. But now, after the Great War, the newly constituted international community was belatedly realizing that the nationality principle was an impossible dream. The map of the new Europe draw, drawn up at Versailles may have given 60 to 75 million people their own quote-unquote national state, but it left 25 million in somebody else's. The Allies devised a set of minorities' treaties and certain special rights, which 15 countries initially were compelled to sign as the price of international recognition. The League of Nations was charged to guarantee these treaties and in order to do that, to supervise uh, their fulfillment of these minorities' treaties. Now examined through anthropological eyes, the boxes of bureaucratic files unearthed at reader's request from storage vaults in the bowels of the Palais des Nations and transported on trolleys to the archives' reading room. They're like buried treasure, a repository of multiple conversations, contestations, and regulatory efforts around the themes of nationality and nation, race and minority, generated in a critical moment of transition from a world of empires to one of nation states. After a week or two of browsing through the boxes, I reformulated my research questions. In a post-World War I context in which post-Ottoman national states in the Southern Balkans had been compelled to define, regulate, and manage their internal diversity according to liberal uh, principles of, di of equality, how did the newly institutionalized international body participate and intervene in this process? The international engagement with each minority state's treatment of its minorities occurred through the leaked supervision of the minorities' treaties. So I had decided to investigate this engagement by focusing on the activities of the minority section of the League Secretariat, which was responsible for the everyday work of treaty, minority treaty supervision. Embarking on the study of an interwar international <coughs> institution, I was straying, as I've said, onto the terrain of historians, international relations scholars, and critical legal scholars. What's anthropological about my work became clearer to me as I began to talk about my research with friends and new acquaintances from these disciplines, and as they tried politely to make sense of this intruder. Are you researching the minorities or the states? A young historian asked me. Others asked if I was researching just Bulgarian minorities or the whole league system. At a recent conference on anthropological approaches to justice, a fellow anthropologist challenged me more robustly. Shouldn't I leave historical topics to the historians, who are much better trained than anthropologists? We'll leave aside the question, which didn't seem to be discipline-specific, which pressed me to explain why was I spending, i.e., why was I wasting my time uh, researching one of the biggest failures of the 20th century? Now, although my answers were often inarticulate, the questions were actually useful because they forced me to consider whether there was any added value whatsoever in my entry as an anthropologist into domains so thoroughly mastered by those from other disciplines. Through these questions, I became more conscious of the implicitly anthropological nature of the project. Rather than studying one or another of the social groups, the subaltern or the elite, the people from below or the people from above. In fact, I was interested in studying and exploring encounters that occurred in the context of the minority section activities. 
Letters, memoranda, minutes, and reports were themselves the media and material evidence of encounters between a whole variety of actors. They included league civil servants, state diplomatic corps, minorities and their spokespersons, revolutionaries, a residual category of self-proclaimed experts, transnational and internationalist organizations, and generally concerned world citizens. And then there was also the press. Some encounters were face-to-face, but many unfolded by means of paper. In either case, more often, they, they involved a babble of codes and languages. And yet the League of Nations remained a site where language was policed, where the language of a petition might be deemed too violent to merit a response. In fact, the very first paper that I developed out of this research was trying to explore this question of, 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 uh, of violent language because what I discovered was that actually more petitions that had been sent in in relation to this Macedonian region got turned down on the basis that their language was violent than the number of those turned down because they were calling for um, secession of Macedonia from uh, these other states and for an autonomous Macedonia. So this became a kind of way for me to understand the importance of of measured and um, rational and reasonable uh, rather than passionate uh, language in, in, in the negotiation of petitions. At the center of many encounters was a material object, a letter, or in league parlance, a petition, because a petition was simply a letter. Although inscribed by human hands, <coughs> I came to see the petition as having a kind of agency of its own. The petition made claims and articulated demands. It instigated encounters between strangers. It generated reactions, readings, and commentaries. It traveled not only from the petitioner's home, which might be Sofia, it might be Chicago or Fort Wayne, Indiana, quite a lot of telegrams coming from the diaspora in North America in the file, but often to other sites as well. The petition would appear in European newspapers. It would be cited in political speeches. It could be passed by hand or by post to international organizations and to uh, immigrant compatriots in the North American diaspora. The petition had a career. The League Minority Petition Procedure which was part of this regime which I'm studying, created in Bourdieu's terms a novel political field with multiple actors of varying provenance, differently positioned, with widely differing and often even antithetical aims. So I wanted to find out how did each actor use the procedure for his or her particular purposes. And this, in fact, allowed me not to see petitions only in the framework, which is the, 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 the very common way that you read people uh, interpreting uh, what happened in, in, the, um, in the petition procedure as simply uh, something that succeeded or something that failed, but to begin to ask questions, well, succeeding for whom and failing for whom? And it became very clear to me uh, that... The petition procedure was, for example, being, in, in this particular case of the Slavic speakers, the Bulgarians, uh, uh, or the Macedonian Bulgarians, but I'll get onto that in a minute. These people, uh, this, this, this particular case, it was, it was primarily being used, in fact, by revolutionary organizations or the civic groups of revolutionary organizations who, in fact, didn't really want the petition to succeed as a minority rights uh, space. They wanted to use it, and in fact they, they used it to demand 
that the League of Nations revisit the whole question of the territorial arrangement and that they uh, do the right thing, they do the just thing and make the Macedonian territory an autonomous territory. Now, the states in the international, uh, in the League of Nations, had a very different idea of what this petition procedure was for. It was a space to channel all those kinds of demands and complaints in order, in a sense, to domesticate the minorities uh, and, and to, to allow, supposedly, those issues to be dealt with so that they did not threat the status quo, which they were not about to change. I was reminded of the anthropological character of my framing when I presented a paper to my colleagues in the Sussex International Relations Depart uh, Department seminar a couple of years ago. Several of the more senior faculty reacted with impatience to my preoccupation with negotiations around petitions within the Secretariat. They scolded me for failing to talk about capitalist forces and imperialist structures of power, as if it were these big processes by themselves that determine the fate of minorities and new states. And not to say that I don't think they're also important, but I didn't make them the causes of the things that I was uh, describing just like that. As I learned at the post-seminar drinks at the bar, the graduate students and some younger faculty had reacted rather differently. They were fascinated by my focus on micro-practices in an international institution and with a project grounded in the empirical evidence of archival files rather than in an argument based on theories of capitalist, uh, global capitalist transformation. This was a key moment for me in realizing the extent to which anthropologists remain empirically grounded in the best sense. My league research has made me even more convinced that it isn't in attending to what actually happens, differentially interpreted though this may be, rather than relying on abstract models of social processes that anthropological work adds value. The messiness of the actual offering a correction to overly theoretical and often ungrounded explanations. Now, whereas any social scientist would probably notice the intriguingly Foucaultian language of surveillance, of supervision, surveillance, uh, adopted in the technical terms of the supervisory framework, anthropologists are also uh, inclined to temper Foucaultian over-totalization and the distorting reliance um, on discourse by paying attention also to agency and meaning. In reading through these archival documents, I've tried to imaginatively reconstruct the micropractices through which the meanings of terms like minority, nationality, nation, race, protection, and rights were forged as petitioners' claims were addressed, dismissed, or passed along sideways to other bureaucrats and state agents. And as I've said, I think anthropologists also bring a kind of ear for language from metaphor and codes, and that's what kind of alerted me to the significance of this term, violent language. Okay, and finally, looking at many specific instances of petitions and ascertaining patterns <coughs> generated surprises. It caused me to return to this question of failure, which is actually the very starting point uh, of most studies of the League of Nations. And it prompted me to ask, as I've said, failure at what? Failure for whom? Because I could see that that uh, assessment that it had failed was not entirely wrong. But in fact, it was, it was a very crude judgment um, it foreclosed interesting kinds of questions. So that's kind of a, a, a way that I began to see my work as having some kind of anthropological um, added. And I think what I want to do now is 
talk to you a little bit about each of these uh, four words that I have highlighted, minority, nationality, internationality, and international governance, and then also show you some photographs, which I think might generate some other um, discussion. Um, I think that my experience uh, working with a, with a uh, Bulgarian-speaking uh, group in northern Greece who insisted that it was not a minority, whereas according to other people's criteria it obviously was, um, made me really uh, interested in this question of uh, the history of the concept minority as well as um, what are the social and political uh, processes in which a minority comes into existence, comes to think of itself as a minority as opposed to something else. And this is one of the key questions that I've, I've brought to this research. And I think that it's important to say that the, the kinds of, uh, that this Answer for me needs to be understood um, in a way that it, theory, as such, won't get us very far. Because I mean, if we think, for example, uh, not in the case of minorities, but if we think of, for example, the um, oh gosh, what's her name now? Um, refugees out of place. Uh, uh, Lisa Malkis. Lisa Malkis' work on refugees as sort of matter out of place. I think that's a very provocative and interesting and actually helpful way to begin to think about uh, international, um, the development of, uh, of, of international policies toward refugees. And we know, of course, that this has a, um, a very complex history in the 20th century in which uh, the, the period and, and the geographical site that I'm looking at is actually very central. Uh, so many movements of populations um, in the Balkans in which people were made into refugees, but also from Russia, Poland, uh, of course the, whole, in, the Jews in the interwar period, and so forth. But in looking very closely, uh, in, in, in trying to find the... the um, Records of how the definition, uh, how, how the, the term minority comes into use in the League of Nations in this period. What uh, became clear to me is that it emerged uh, as a product of contestation, compromise, and contingency. It isn't something that can be understood as one logic uh, having uh, uh, one out over another one. Uh, the question of minority and minority protection was actually taken up by a number of private organizations uh, during the First World War. Uh, and in these organizations, uh, Jews were very prominent, both European Jews and uh, North American Jews, because they were beginning to get quite worried about the treatment of Jews in uh, many parts uh, of Europe in particular, and already there were Zionist movements uh, also um, developing who had sometimes different notions of where that Jewish homeland should be. But there were different proposals put forward through, for example, um, conferences. There were two conferences in 1915 uh, and 1916 in the Office des Nationalités in Lausanne. Um, uh, and they, they put together a declaration of the rights of nationalities, which they conceived as a complementary doctrine to the declarations of the rights of man. It called for general principles of racial, religious, and linguistic tolerance, and the right of homogeneous nationalities to form independent states, or for different nationalities to form federal or unitary states in free association with each other. Different groups or nationalities in each state were to have local, municipal, scholastic, and religious autonomy. And the individual was to have the right to retain his or her 
personal, so-called personal nationality, which was to be distinguished from the political nationality or citizenship. So already you have uh, notions that the term nationality can be used, as it was said in those times, in the racial sense, okay, as associated with your race, which was the, the, the rubric prior to uh, our use of the term ethnicity, but also associated with the political uh, affiliation. Something called the Association for Durable Peace in Hague developed similar kinds of proposals. They had a draft international treaty on the rights of national minorities, promising civil and political equality, uh, the rights um, uh, of minorities to state subsidies for schools and churches, and even separate electoral colleges to assure proportional representation. Um, in 1915, a Jewish Zionist socialist organization demanded the right of national self-determination for Jewish minorities in all countries. Now, all of these ones that I've cited are theorizing nationalities as communities or collectivities which have uh, a membership in a larger entity in the, in the empire in this case, because these ideas were particularly being developed in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, among the Habsburgs, um, but um, still had significant autonomy in relation to cultural, uh, educational life, and political agency uh, on the basis of their national um, grouping, of their nationality. In fact, there was uh, an Austrian Marxist named Otto Bauer, who in 1907, uh, he developed a novel proposal for representing the interests of distinct nationalities uh, within Habsburg through separate uh, national legislatures, which were allowed to decide on cultural and educational matters. Now, it's a little bit confusing the way I presented it, but what I want to give you a sense of is that these issues were actually very alive at the time, and that people were developing uh, a lot of ideas, which had you know, quite a lot of overlapping shared, shared ideas, in relation to giving more autonomy to groups on the basis of the nationality that, uh, at this kind of cultural, linguistic, or in those terms, racial level. And I have to say that I think this was particularly developed in the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, among the more um, educated and elite minorities, such as the Germans, um, the, who else would be included in that? Hungarians. Um, the Jews were very conscious uh, and, and, and active in this. Um, who many times already had a very strong sense of their own difference, of their own specificity. And I think this is, I think I have to mention that this is quite, I think, a different scene than what you would have found in Macedonia or in the Ottoman Empire, or at least in this part of Macedonia where, where I was working. Now, these are not the ideas that got into the treaty. And that's because there was a lot of diplomatic uh, chewing and froing. Um, I think I won't go through all of the different details with you, but you know there was sort of concessions made, one step back, one step forward. Um, and in the end, um, what you get, oh, well, the, the most important thing is just, just before the end, the first state to get a minority treaty was Poland. And Poland was quite uh, a tough nut. Uh, and when the idea, uh, because there was a large uh, number of Jews, and the Jews had asked for, quote, national cultural autonomy for all uh, minorities, including themselves, um, and this was rejected by the Allies because the, Poland was not happy to accept it. And the argument was that doing this, uh, giving national cultural autonomy for all minorities, would be um, like setting up a state within a state, a nation within a nation, and it was definitely understood in those terms. And in fact, the Polish government did not want to uh, recognize these groups as nationalities because the terminology itself was seen as a threat. And this is actually where the, the term minority becomes agreed upon as a kind of compromise term 
rather than nationality. But I think something very important happens when that happens, and that is there is a shift that has been made between uh, identifying someone on the basis of the language they've spoken, and usually a, not always, but quite often, uh, a mother country somewhere else. Um, and you shift that to the, the category minority, which is, by definition, uh, a subordinate unit, even if only numerically, but a subordinate unit within a host state. And I think this is a very significant kind of shift. And also, you, uh, in, in the understanding of the minorities' treaties, minority rights are given to individuals and not to groups. So in that sense, it is actually following the, um, the liberal um, conception uh, of political and civil rights. Okay, now how does this work in relation to the Macedonian territories that I'm looking at? Well, I think the first thing to know is that There's no agreement. In fact, there is essential contestation uh, on what can't you know, on these Slavic speakers and which nationality, which minority they are, which group they are. The Bulgarians say that they are definitely Bulgarians by blood and speech. The Serbs say no way, they are South Serbs by blood and speech. The Greeks call them Bulgarophone Greeks or uh, Slavophone Greeks. Um, what do they say they are? Well, it depends. Yeah, some call themselves Bulgarians. Some uh, call themselves uh, Macedonians. Some call themselves Macedo-Bulgarians. And others say, well, we're actually Greek. So you actually have no uh, kind of uh, ability to come to an, an agreement about who these people are. And this, indeed, often brings a kind of paralysis in the process. So you now have a, a term minority, but the groups who are involved can't agree on what this minority is, and therefore whether or not they have the right to actually send in uh, petitions on behalf of themselves or other people on their behalf uh, as minorities. And this actually is a, is a uh, problem that never really gets resolved, um, although it doesn't completely stop all action. And certain things do uh, get taken forward in terms of the petition pr procedure, despite the fact that there is a, a lack of agreement about this. And I wanted to uh, make the point that this is actually the same situation that we have today, uh, if you go to, uh, as I have, the working meetings of the UN on uh, minorities, um, uh, the rights of minorities, uh, I remember going to a meeting in which the, um, in which the, 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 the convener said, uh, yes, it doesn't matter, we don't agree on the word minority, but we're just going to go ahead anyway. Uh, and, and so this is actually quite a common um, what can I say, sort of dilemma, situation uh, in the international world uh, when a definition is not agreed upon, indigenous peoples was not agreed upon for a long time, and yet certain kinds of decisions and certain kinds of policies actually did happen despite that. Okay. Um, okay, I th I've, I've said a few things about nationality in, in, as I was talking about um, minorities, so I think I'll leave it at that and you can ask me more questions. Let me talk uh, about these two other terms, uh, or the first of them and I'm going to show you some photographs. The first term, internationality. I think what I want to say about that is that uh, what you see at this time in the 1920s is just after the First World War, the, the terrible trauma of the First World War. And there is actually a huge hope for internationality, for the international community, as something which is going to uh, be able to 
fix the world, actually, to create a world which, where war, such a war will not happen again. But of course, there are many different kind of versions and visions and dreams about the international. And I think when we look at international, the international institution, we have to understand that there are these multiple uh, visions which are um, operating, which coexist, and some get can become dominant at certain points and others um, do not. Now I wanted to bring the, give you one example uh, of an organization uh, which became quite engaged with the League of Nations, which is the Women's International League of Peace and Freedom. And I discovered them through the archives, through looking at petitions. And I discovered... Um, several petitions sent in by Bulgarian women's organizations who were protesting uh, against the suffering of the Bulgarian refugees across the border who'd, been, who'd fled across the Greek-Bulgarian border and, um, and who also complained about the general suffering of the Macedonians who were Macedonian-Bulgarians who were living under uh, Serbian rule and Greek rule, as they said. And they approached this Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which is an internationalist, pacifist, and feminist organization. It was an organization that located itself in Geneva precisely so that it could influence uh, this new uh, international institution, um, whose terms, the terms of which they were very disappointed in. They were looking for something much more socialist, much more <coughs> radical, and they were very, very disappointed by it. But they decided that they would put their office there and try to influence uh, this, new, this new international organization. But at the same time, they sent out their, their tentacles uh, to the Middle East, to Eastern Europe, the Far East, Latin America, to set up uh, organizations. Uh, women's uh, pacifist, uh, you know, WILPF branches. And, and through those two kinds of modalities, they were, I think, offering an alternative practice of internationality. And I think this, this uh, kind of collaboration where the Bulgarian women's organizations approached the WILPF and said, would you help us? Would you intercede for us? We know you have an office in Geneva. Uh, would you take our letter to the League of Nations and see that it gets looked at very seriously? A and they did, and you see this in the records. And what they do is they introduce the, the uh, petitions of the women. And whereas the women are, are using this very passionate language of outrage and violence and violation, they say, uh, actually, the facts of which these women speak are, are absolutely true, um, and they and they attach, you know, a, a little booklet of a, of a friend's, um, you know, Quaker organization, which which has itself described the situation in Bulgaria as a kind of, you know, a, a bit of evidence. And I think that this is this is a kind of intriguing example, which has certain kinds of resonances of a kind of civilizing project of mostly Western European and. Uh, North American, but also some Eastern European women in the leadership. But on the other hand, instead of speaking for them, there is a kind of speaking with, there is a kind of accompaniment. I think it is a slightly different modality, uh, which, which intrigues me quite a lot, uh, which, is, which is happening in the interstices, which is happening on the edges of this supervision process. It's something that we need to see as part of the social process. Uh, by which this minority supervision happened. Okay, I'm going to show you some photos now.
Okay, the first set of pictures, first set of photos, uh, are by a photographer named William Martin, who was working in the League of Nations. And they, uh, they have to do with a, not the supervision of minority treaties specifically, but uh, it's a League commission, which was sent in to resolve a border incident, the Greek-Bulgarian border incident of 1925, in which a Greek soldier's dog was strayed over into Bulgarian territory, and the Bulgarian soldier got excited and shot the Greek who chased after his dog and went into Bulgarian territory and killed him. And this created an international incident. But fortunately, they said, okay, we won't attack each other. We'll wait for the League to come and sort us out. And this is indeed what they happened. So I think it's, it, it it's just gives you a kind of sense of the... some of the characters and the regions. And, okay, so... Just the, the, the arrival of the commissioners uh, into Sofia, I believe. Okay. Um, this is, uh, there's not much information in the files about who these people are, but somebody who, with a good eye for religious figures. Now, it, it, maybe you can tell me whether this is Armenian or, or Islamic dress here. Anybody tell me? Anyway, meeting with some clerics. Okay, the town of Sivero Castro on the border, which is near where the incident happened on the Greek side. Okay, this is a picture of the border itself, which I think must be marked. Again, there's no information on the back of the photo, but I presume it must be marked with cloth for it to be that bright and that wide. Okay. You, are you sure it's been drawn? Uh, ah, yes, you're right. Okay, well, it could be. But it's not, well, if it's been drawn on, it's not, it's been drawn on, and then a photograph has been taken of the thing that was drawn on. So that, um, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Anyway, it gives you a sense. Okay. This is the one of the little hamlets near where the incident took place. And I just like the contrast of the big car and <coughs> folks hanging around it, and the sort of conditions in which people lived at is that this time. A minority neighborhood. This would be uh, right on the border, the Greek side of the border, in this border regions of Greece and Bulgaria in the mountains. Yes, yes, they would be Bulgarian-speaking Greeks. Yeah. Okay. Guess who are the commissioners and guess who are the peasants here? Mm-hmm. Um, this is very interesting because it's, it's apparently uh, several schools of uh, orphans, in fact, orphans from the wars that had been going on for the last few years, who have arrived early in the morning to greet the commissioners with their little bouquets of flowers. Um, uh, uh, and their flags, as was often done for, for dignitaries, but unfortunately they're still asleep in the train, so they haven't got up yet. This is an orphanage uh, on the border. Um, okay. Uh, and this is a, a school teacher with some of the orphans who are all dressed up in military type uniforms. Not sure why. And I think these are the women whose, well, it, in, not in this specific incident, but who, who are widows of um, the, you know, the conflicts that have been going on uh, in relation to Greece and Bulgaria. Okay, so just to give you sort of a flavor of some of those things. And this is the, if you can see them, the group of... Um, the commissioners plus representatives for the Greek and the Bulgarian side, in a sense, re-establishing the border which has been transgressed. All right. The second couple of pictures I wanted to show you is uh, is about another uh, petition that I haven't had time to talk about and I've only begun to really look at it. 
but I discovered these photos in the uh, in the archives, and they are um, basically a, a petition which is sent in by Ali Dino Bey from the area of uh, Preveza in the west of Greece um, on behalf of a group of Albanian Muslims which are known as Chams or Tsamidans. And they had been, on, by virtue of being uh, Muslim, uh, initially they were included in the compulsory exchange between the Greeks, uh, between Greece and Turkey um, as uh, Muslims from this part of Greece. But many of them did not want to be uh, exchanged because they said, we are not Turks, we are Albanians, we are Muslim Albanians. And they were therefore allowed to stay, many of them, some of them did get forcibly uh, exchanged. They were allowed to stay, but, but before that, that was decided, they had actually had to hand over their houses to the uh, Orthodox who were coming in from Turkey. And those Orthodox, in fact, uh, moved in to their houses, those which were marked by X in these photographs. And the um, Chams um, were forced, and I'm going to just very quickly go back to that, were forced to live in these little grass kind of straw huts, which they built for themselves. So they sent in a bunch of photos saying, here are the houses that had belonged to us, that we built or our fathers built, and now we are being forced to live in these huts. And despite the fact that you've allowed us to stay here, you're not giving us back our houses. And we feel this is unjust. So, okay, and because we're very short of time, I won't uh, really go into this, but, but this is a cover letter. This is what uh, it looks like in the files in the League of Nations. When you read things, there's a note by the Secretary General which summarizes uh, the uh, petition uh, and describes how it's been uh, the representation that they have made, the petition that they have made, uh, has been looked at by the Greek represent uh, representative, and he has provided an answer. And this is the original uh, petition in the files, written in French by obviously an educated uh, religious leader, uh, Ali Dino Bey, um, asking for the situation to be resolved. Okay. So despite the fact that they've um, given the houses uh, and the, the new refugees have profited from them, they haven't been given back, although they should. Okay, very quickly now, just a few photos uh, from the League of Nations Secretary General. So you can really see these kind of different worlds. This is the minority section that I'm dealing with. The women, the women are essentially um, secretaries, I'm afraid. This is a many men political section. You see the kind of army of interpreters and uh, translators and uh, polycopiers and uh, multigraphers. Okay, uh, and finally, just a few photos from the Women's International League of Peace and Freedom: Jane Addams, Evelyn Green Balch. There's Jane Addams. Uh, this is Mary Sheepshanks, the cousin of Virginia Woolf, who was uh, uh, giving advice, uh, secretary of WRLPF, giving advice to the Bulgarian and Macedonian women. And this is the woman working in the office uh, when those Bulgarian and Macedonian women wrote in okay. WRLPF in front of their house in Geneva, the Maison Internationale. Okay, I know I'm over time, so one more minute, just to sum up. Um, just a final, I think, interesting reason to look at the uh, League of Nations is to get a sense of international governance in, in a longer-term historical perspective. Because I think in the present moment, what we're getting, anthropologists who are going into these international organizations, they're very much looking at... Uh, international organizations in this neoliberal moment. 
where we see these processes of self-audit and peer review, things that are very familiar to us, actually, in the university system. Uh, and, and, and NGOs and other partners are being, in a sense, inducted, enlisted into these um, sorts of self-auditing kinds of processes, which, with all the kinds of effects. But I think if you have a longer-term perspective, you can see that the international community didn't always work with the same kinds of rationales and logics. Certainly in the UN period, uh, there was a much more legal emphasis. There were legal uh, conventions on human rights um, and, and uh, civil rights, political rights. And there was an expectation that, uh, you know, that you worked, there, there was a kind of legal framing of the whole thing. And I think if you go even further back to the period I've been talking to, uh, th there was an attempt to define this process that I've described not as a legal process, but in fact as a political process. It was not a judicial process. It was a kind of attempt to solve problems in an informal way. And this is, was also at a moment, I think, prior to the organization being very bureaucratically entrenched. It was much more fluid, it was much more experimental. It thought of itself as experimental. So I think if one has this kind of longer-term perspective, it, it can actually help one think about the present, I think, in, in a little bit more nuanced way. Okay, thank you very much for your patience.